the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the Book of Exodus. Throughout the Book of Exodus, we have seen God fulfill His amazing promises to the children of Israel. They were a flawed people, just like everyone else. Yet, God remained faithful. Israel repented from their idolatry and completed all that God had asked them to do. Will God keep His promise to be with them to the end? We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 40. As we reach the end of our study of Exodus here tonight, we reflect on on what the whole book is about. God he's promised to a new nation. God, we read it in our scripture, he promised he'd bring them out of Egypt, that he'd be their God, they'd be his people, and he'd bring them into the promised land. Well, God has brought them out of Egypt. He's brought them to Sinai, just like he promised. And he's entered into a covenant with Israel, just like he did with their forefathers. And the tabernacle, the place where they'll meet with him and have a relationship with him is finally complete. So all that's left when we get to chapter 40 is for Moses to prepare the tabernacle for the Lord's presence to descend and be there. And when he descends to dwell in their midst, God will have fulfilled his promise. And if we ask the status of Operation Exodus, the answer can only be mission accomplished because God did everything that he said he would do. And my hope tonight is that as we go through this chapter and we reflect on where the journey we've taken through Exodus, we'll see that God is so faithful and that he always keeps his promises. So chapter 40, verse 1. Context, remember, they've just had Moses inspect the tabernacle, and he says everything's exactly as the Lord commanded them to do it. And so Moses blessed them. That's what the last verse of 39 says. And so now the Lord, verse 1, chapter 40, spoke unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shall you set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. So here we find that this now, it says there's going to be a specific date when he's going to erect the tabernacle, and they're going to begin to use it. It would be the first day, it says, of the first month, marking the start of the second year of the Exodus. So it would be set up just in time to celebrate the Passover for the first time. I mean, aside from the original time, but for the first time in commemoration. So it's been a year since they've left Egypt. And he says here, you're going to set it up on this day, a year later. You'll set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Now, the word tabernacle, of course, as we've seen, it just means tent. It says you're going to set up the tent of the tent of the congregation, which why would it be said twice? Well, the reason is, is because remember, the tent has two portions to it. You have the enclosed portion, the tabernacle proper. That's where the holy place and the holy of holies would be. That's where you would go inside. We're going to see some reference to it here in a moment. In the holy place, if you were to walk in through the curtains, push the curtains aside on the right side, you'd see the table of showbread that would have the 12 loaves symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, the idea that God was their provider each and every day. On the left side, you would see the golden menorah that was to show them that there would be a light to the world. And then straight in front of them, they would have the golden altar of incense, the idea that as priests would bring the prayer request of the people to the Lord, that the Lord would hear and he would answer. And then one day a year, we'll learn about this in Leviticus, they would part that curtain and go into the Holy of Holies. And in there would be the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, two angels with their wings kind of on the top, the two cherubim. The idea that it was God's throne. This is a place where they would come to approach the presence of the Lord, his presence there in the Holy of Holies. The ten of the tent of the congregation. The tent of the congregation is the whole thing, but it's not all covered. The tent that is referenced, the first tent there is a reference to the covered part, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. Okay? So on the first day of the first month, you're going to set this thing up. So verse three, and you shall put therein or inside 
what I just said, the Ark of the Testimony. He shall cover the Ark with the veil. The reason it's called the Ark of the Testimony here, not the Ark of the Covenant, is God's gift of the stone tablets is going to be placed inside. If we read later on, he's going to tell him to do that. So the stone tablets that have the Ten Commandments on it are the testimony. The word for testimony is another word for the law of the Lord. There's many words that are used for the law of the Lord. You know, his testimony, his fear, his, his statutes, his commandments, they're all referring to the same thing. It's referring to his word. And so he calls it here the Ark of the Testimony because those tablets will be set inside. So he says, you shall put there in, inside the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Testimony, and then you will cover or literally shield. It'd be a barrier to protect the priests from going in there by mistake to shield the Ark with the veil. So there'll be a veil there or a curtain that will separate the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And you shall bring the table, that's the table of showbread, and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. And then you shall bring in the lampstick, or the candle stand, candlestick, and light the lamps thereof, so that's on the left side. And then you'll set the altar of gold for the incense in front of the Ark of the Testimony. And then you put the hanging on the door of the tent. This would be then the outer curtain that you would have to go inside to get into the holy place. Once you get outside into the uncovered portion, verse 6, you shall set the altar of the burnt offering in front of the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Not right in front, it's actually going to be quite a ways away. If you kind of think of the tabernacle as a rectangle, you would come in through the entrance to be uncovered, come in through the entrance into the outer court, into first thing you would see is the altar of sacrifice. Then after that, as we get to a moment, you would have the brass laver, which would be the tub where the priest would wash, butchering an animal, barbecuing meat can get messy. And so that's where they would do their ceremonial washings. And then the building that was covered, the tent itself would be after that. So when he says in front, it's not right in front because we'll see in just a moment the brass lavers in between them. Verse 7. And you shall set the laver, or that tub, between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and you shall put water therein. And you shall set up the court round about and hang up the hangings of the court gate. The court round about would be on boards, and they would hang up that all around as well. So verse 9. Now we're going to get to the vessels, how they would be used inside, and all the materials that would be used for the ministry there. Verse 9. And you shall take the anointing oil, and you're going to anoint the tabernacle. Anointing there means to smear. It was a very sticky substance. We talked about it uh, earlier on in Exodus. And you're going to take it, and you're going to smear the tent and everything inside. And that shall hallow it. The idea to hallow, it means to set apart from common use. To set apart, to be exclusively used for the service of God. The stuff smeared all over it, it'd be only good for one thing, and that's serving in the tabernacle. And therefore, it would be distinct or set apart for God's use. Then he says in verse 10, And you shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all his vessels, and that will sanctify the altar. Again, set it apart for special use. It shall be an altar most holy. And you shall anoint the laver and his foot, that means the base of the tub. And he says, you shall sanctify it as well. So everything was to be anointed for use. And if you want to find out more about all these pieces of furniture, the anointing oil and all that kind of stuff, I encourage you to go back to listen to the studies I did in the beginning of Exodus, like 25 through 27 or so. It goes over all those details. I don't want to do it again tonight. Now in verse 12, we get to the preparation of Aaron and his sons for the priesthood. And you shall bring Aaron and his sons unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, right to the door of the holy place. And there, because that's where the laver is, the big tub, you wash them with water. After they wash, you shall put upon Aaron the holy garments. And then you're going to anoint him. You're going to smear all his garments with this stuff. Again, you wouldn't be going out for a night in the town with them on. And you'll sanctify him so that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. This, he'll be set apart for that task. And then you shall bring his sons and you'll clothe them with the coats that we talked about in Exodus 28. And you shall anoint 
anoint them as well as you did anoint their father, that they may minister unto me in the priest's office. For their anointing shall surely be an everlasting priesthood throughout their generations. So thus did Moses. According to all the Lord commanded him, so did he. I talked about this briefly last week, but every area here, when Israel gets their second chance to do this the right way, they are obedient to the Lord. They do it exactly as God says. I think one of our challenges as Christians sometimes is that we read something that God says and we kind of tweak it a little bit. You ever done this before? You're going to someone and you're going to say something to them and maybe you're not so nice about it and they respond to you and they say, you know, you're not being very nice to me. And you say, well, you need to hear the truth. We tweak it a little bit, you know? God says to speak the truth, but he also says to speak it in love. I think it's important when we look at the example of Israel that they did exactly as God had said. Anytime we tweak God's truth a bit and we twist it a little bit, we're gonna get into trouble. And Israel here and Moses, they're in the right spot. They do exactly as the Lord commanded them. According to all the Lord commanded him, so did he. And so in verse 17, now we're gonna see him do it. And it came to pass in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, that the tabernacle was reared up. And so Moses reared up the tabernacle. And he fastened, it's going to call it his sockets. Again, I think it just points forward to how all these things point to Christ. I don't know if he named them him or her, but the point being here is that he's going to now put this thing together. And Moses reared up the tabernacle and he fastened the sockets. Remember the boards, this was not a building like we did with like brick and mortar. It had to be on the move. It had to be able to be deconstructed quickly so they could go on the move and then reconstruct it again to wherever God stopped. When you had set it up, it would be temporary, but it had to be something that would not fall down on itself. So all the boards and the tent was constructed around, they would go into these sockets to provide security. So he fastened his sockets and he set up the boards thereof and put in the bars. These were the the bars on the sides that provides more stability and reared up the pillars, the bars that were going up and down. And he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle. He put the roof, the four layers of the roof over the tabernacle. And he put the covering of the tent above upon it as the Lord commanded Moses. And he took and he put the testimony into the ark. This would be the law. He took the law, the two tablets that God had given to him, the gift of his law, and he put it inside the ark and he set the staves inside the ark. And then he put the mercy seat above upon the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the covering, the veil to shield the holy place from the holy of holies. And he covered or shielded the ark of the testimony as the Lord commanded Moses. And he put the table in the tent of the congregation upon the side of the tabernacle northward, that would be on the right side, outside the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And then he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he put the candlestick in the tent of the congregation over against or opposite of the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. And he lighted the lamps before the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he put the golden altar in the tent of the congregation in front of the curtain, the veil, and he burnt sweet incense thereon as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he set up the hanging at the door, this would be the entrance of the tabernacle, and he put the altar burnt offering by the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and he offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering, King James says meat offering, it just means meal or grain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Now that's interesting because Moses is not a priest, but he's getting the ball rolling on everything. He's got the bread there for the table of showbread. He's got the incense burning on the golden altar. He's got lamps lit on the golden candle stand. And now he offers the morning sacrifice there at the burnt altar. So Moses gets the ball rolling with everything before he even brings Aaron and his sons in for them to begin their service and before he anoints all the pieces of furniture. Now you might be saying, well, how could he be using these things if they're not anointed yet or if he's not even the priest? Well, it was perfectly fine right now because God's presence hasn't come inside the tabernacle yet. He'll anoint everything in Leviticus after God's presence descends into the Holy of Holies. And the washing we're going to get to here in a second. It says down here in verse 30, He set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and he put water inside to wash with it. And then Moses and Aaron and his sons, they washed their hands and their feet thereat. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. He reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished 
the work. The washing of Aaron and his sons is to prepare them for their consecration ceremony. We read about that in Exodus 29. So again, you can get the CD on that if you want, or the MP3, whatever. We'll see their consecration ceremony in full when we get to Leviticus. And that is very significant. Here it's just summarized. But here it mentions, so Moses finished the work. And so now that everything is complete, we find out if God will keep his promise. To see if the purpose of Exodus is achieved. To understand the significance of these final verses, we have to go back to the beginning of Exodus and string together some very important passages. So if you'll bear with me, I feel like if we're going to go back, we're going to read the story in shortened form before we read these last few verses, because I think if we do that, it'll make a whole lot more sense. So let's go to Exodus 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt, every man in his household that came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. These are all the sons of Jacob. And all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls. For Jacob was in Egypt, Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And the children of Israel were fruitful. They increased abundantly and they multiplied, waxed exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. And he said unto his people, Behold, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come on. Let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply, and it come to pass that when there falls out any war, they join also unto our enemies and fight against us, and so get them up out of the land. Therefore, they did set over them taskmasters to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh treasure cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were grieved because of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel to serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, with slavery, in mortar and in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service wherein they made them to serve was with rigor. The king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of which the name of the one was Shupra, and the name of the other was Pua. And he said, when you do the office of a midwife to the Hebrew women, and you see them upon the stools, they're giving birth. If it be a son, you shall kill him. But if it be a daughter, then shall she live. This is a situation that Israel finds himself in when God sends a redeemer. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. And it came to pass, chapter 2, verse 23, in process of time that the king of Egypt died. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of their bondage. And they cried. And their cry came up unto God by reason of their bondage. And God heard their groanings. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, and with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel. And God had respect unto them, it says. It means he acknowledged them. He heard their prayer. And so verse 1, chapter 3. Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the backside of the desert. And came to the mountain of God, even to Oreb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, but the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not consumed. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. So God said to him, draw not near here, but put off your shoes from off your feet for the place whereon you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. But the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children has come up unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppress them. So come now, therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Everything's looking good now. They cry out to God because things are so hard, so difficult, and God hears their prayer, and he sends Moses 
to come lead them out. And so in chapter four, verse 27, the Lord said unto Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him in the Mount of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he commanded him. So Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses. And he did the miracles in the sight of the people. And the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction, then they bowed their heads and they worshiped. What an exciting moment that was. Our God has come to rescue us. Then there becomes a kink in the plan. (laughs) Pharaoh's in the way. Chapter five, verse one. So afterward, Moses and Aaron, they went in and they told Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. But they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray you, three days journey into the desert and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And the king of Egypt said unto them, wherefore do you, what what are you up to, Moses and Aaron? You know, why is it that you're letting the people from their work go get you under your burdens? And so Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land now are many and you make them to rest from their burdens. So Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers saying, you shall no more give the people straw to make brick as beforehand. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the number of the bricks which they did make beforehand, you shall lay it upon them. You shall not diminish anything of, for they are idle. That's why they cry saying, let us go and sacrifice unto our God. And look at how they react in verse 20. The leadership of Israel, it says they met Moses, verse 20, and Aaron, who stood in the way as they came forth from Pharaoh. And they said unto them, the Lord, look upon you and judge, because you have made our savor to be abhorred in the eyes of Pharaoh and the eyes of his servants to put a sword in their hand to slay us. And so Moses now distraught goes back to the Lord. And he says, Lord, why have you so evilly entreated this people? Why is it that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. And this was one of the lowest moments in all the book of Exodus. Despite all the anguish and pain of their slavery, despite all the difficulty they'd been through, despite them crying out to God for rescue, to have all of a sudden God come and say through Moses, I am going to rescue you. I've heard your cries. I've seen your struggle. I see what you're going through. I'm gonna come through. And then they go and they ask Pharaoh and things just get worse. Things get horribly, horribly worse to the point where leadership comes to Moses and Aaron. They won't even talk to him anymore. Say, get out of our face. You just made things worse. We're dead men walking. So Moses returns to the Lord. He goes, what are you doing, God? You haven't done anything you said you'd do. You you haven't kept any of your promises. You said that you'd come and you'd deliver your people and you haven't done any of these things. And that brings us to the all-important portion of Exodus 6. God, he had made promises to Abraham. He made promises to Isaac, promises to Jacob. And everything that he'd said had come to pass. He said to Abraham, Abraham was concerned. He said, Lord, the Lord came to him after a fight, a big battle where he'd rescued his nephew Lot. And Abraham was discouraged. And the Lord came to him and said, Abraham, cheer up. I'm your shield. I, I can protect you. I'm your good, great reward. You know, I-, I have everything you need. And Abraham says, what good is it? I don't have any kids to pass it on to. Everything you've done, it dies with me. And he said, my servant's gonna get everything I have. And the Lord said to him, your servant will not get everything you have. For you are going to have a son and your descendants are going to be like the sand on the seashore. And Abraham, the Bible says, he believed God. He trusted God that he would keep his promise. And onward down through, we get to Isaac and God makes the same promise to Isaac. He has a child, Isaac, miraculously. And then God makes the same promise to Isaac. He keeps his promise to Isaac. And then he makes the same promise to Isaac's son, Jacob. And he keeps his promise to Jacob. And Jacob, as we read in the beginning of Exodus, he goes down into Egypt and God has preserved his whole family there. But things get rough. Those promises don't mean a whole lot to a people who had never seen God, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. And when all of a sudden word comes that he's going to be their God and he's going to fix their problem, it seems like he doesn't come through. And so when Moses complains to the Lord, 
Exodus 6 is not God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. It's God's promises to them. Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shall you see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand shall he let them go. And with a strong hand shall he drive them out of his land. How crazy that must have seemed to Moses at that point. You know, how crazy it must have seemed to Israel at that point. You know, in fact, when you get to verse 9 up here of chapter 6, it says, and Moses spoke all these promises to, to the children of Israel, but it says, they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. Have you ever been in that place where someone reads a promise of God to you, but the anguish of your heart, it just doesn't seem like you can take it. It's hard to even hear it. God made it nonetheless. He says, I'm going to do this. For God spoke unto Moses and he said unto him, I am the Lord. That's that word Jehovah or Yahweh. That's my name. It's who I am. The one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be. Jehovah, it means I am that I am. I am the one who becomes to his people what his people need him to be. Now he tells him here, I appeared unto Abraham. I appeared unto Isaac, unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty or El Shaddai. He says, but by my name, Jehovah, my personal name, who I am, I was not known to them that way. But he says, I want to make myself known to you that way. I'm going to enter into a relationship with you that is so different than theirs. And I have also established my covenant with them, with I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers or foreigners. But here he says, I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say this unto the children of Israel, this is my promise to them. I made promises to those other people, but here's my promises to you. I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And I will rid you of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you unto the land concerning the which I swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. This is what Exodus is all about. The beginning of Exodus fulfilled the first of these three promises. The end of Exodus begins fulfilling the second one. The first promise is that I'm going to bring you out of Egypt. We already saw that. We covered that all through the ten plagues and the miracles that God did. And destroying the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And bringing them to Mount Sinai. And then we began to see how God entered into a relationship with them. He made a covenant with them. Not the covenant with his forefathers, but a, a unique covenant with them, his people Israel. And so the end of Exodus, we see he's fulfilling that. And even though Moses originally relays these promises to Israel and they can't really receive it because of their bondage. It's in light of these verses right here. In light of that verse right there where they couldn't receive it then. Then I want to read the final verses of Exodus 40. So turn back to the last chapter, verse 34. Verse 33 ends with, so Moses finished the work. It's all done. Will God keep his promise? He does. For verse 34 says, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tent. Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, it stayed there. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, then the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not until the day that he was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was upon that tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all all their journeys. He was with them, just like he said. Can you imagine how rewarding these last verses are in light of all the pain they've been through? You added the element then of their own sin later on that put this promise at risk, their own failure with the golden calf. Can you understand how glorious this day was for Israel to see God be faithful to his promises? They've been rescued and forgiven. God had come to dwell among them. And if that doesn't get your heart going and make you think, wow, that's pretty awesome, I don't know what will. 
The phrase where the cloud covered the tent of the congregation, it means to cover so as to conceal or hide. The tent was completely lost in God's presence in that form of a smoky cloud. And so it says that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, his glorious presence. What Moses prayed to see face to face, it came and dwelt there in the tabernacle. And as a result, it says Moses had to exit the tabernacle. Aaron and his sons aren't mentioned as exiting, but they have to leave too. Because until everything gets anointed, uh, it's not okay for just human flesh to go walking on in there in the presence of the Lord. But what I love here is the last three verses, because it just mentions here that wherever God went, that's where Israel went. If he got up to go, that's where they went. If he stopped, they stopped and they stayed. At the very last verse, it says, for the cloud of the Lord was upon the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. Every single one of those people could step outside their tent and they could look and see the presence of the Lord there on the tabernacle and see that God kept his promise. It was that way throughout all their journeys. See, from this moment forward, Israel's relationship with him was paramount to all they did. If God moved, they followed. If God stopped, they made camp. He was their God and they were his people. Mission accomplished, amen? Now, we've been saying all throughout Exodus that everything points to Jesus. And as such, everything relates to us too. You know, it's interesting. We don't need a tabernacle because we are his tabernacle. We learned about that this morning, right? And yet there's something even more. The tabernacle was a tent, a temporary dwelling place for God. We are his temple, a place for God to permanently reside. So why don't we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where it talks about that, about us. Verses 19 and 20. Know you not, or don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and that you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In the same way the tabernacle was to be a set-apart place where God's presence dwelt, our bodies, our lives are to be a set-apart place where the Lord can make a permanent residence in us, that he can be at home in us. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, has a little bit more to say about this topic. Paul and his argument about not yoking with false teachers and false teaching, he makes this comment down in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you and will be a father unto you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. You know, like Israel, we have a precious promise from God. Many precious promises from God. He dwells in our midst. He lives inside of us. We're his people. And he calls us to follow him by leaving our Egypt behind, to draw near to him, to love him with all of our heart. For in chapter 7 of 2 Corinthians verse 1, he says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, you who are greatly loved by God, he says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness, maturing into holiness in the fear of God. God calls us to be separate out from our old lives of Egypt and to his heart, to have a deep abiding relationship with him, to understand how much he loves us and to love him back with all that's in us. That was our goal in studying Exodus. And I hope it's been mission accomplished for you too. God is faithful to keep his promises. We do not deserve it. We could never earn it. But God chooses to show us mercy because it is his character and nature to do so. He is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God who becomes what we need in every circumstance and situation. All we must do is come to him on his terms. Did you know you can call us and ask for any physical assistance or spiritual need? We would love to pray for you. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online 
at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.